Good morning. Good morning. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I always know when it's third service. So I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, Like Ryan said, if you're a guest, we're glad that you're here with us. And filling out that Connect card really does help us out. It means a lot to us here at the church. We love to pray for you and your families. And so you can turn that um, in in a little while in the offering tray or stop by the Welcome Center. Hey, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat back or underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, That's yours to keep. Go ahead and take that home with you. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We are finishing our series called This Is Us. Um, Today we're Paul and Timothy are corresponding and we're learning what it looks like to live a godly life. And so we're going to finish that series. And next week we launch into a series called What Child Is This? And uh, David and I will be walking through the Christmas story, uh, kind of creating that sense of anticipation during this Advent season for the birth of Jesus as we celebrate that. Um, And in an American culture that's commercialized it quite a bit, try to create some freshness around it. So pray for us. Uh, So next week, uh, we start the series, This Is Us, and we're uh, looking forward to that a lot. Hey, uh, the week before last, I got to spend some time over in Illinois at a conference called uh, ICOM. It's called the International Conference on Missions. And the purpose of this conference is it gathers um, all kinds of missionaries from all over the globe, and they come together once a year in a different location. And so you go to that city. Uh, this past, the past one just a couple weeks ago was in Peoria, Illinois. And so we went to the convention center. And as you walk around the, the, uh, the convention hall, there are booths set up for different ministries. And so you walk around and you learn about what these missionaries are doing, the work that they're doing. And many of the missionaries that New Hope supports had booths, and we were able to catch up and talk to them and even pray with some of them. It was really a neat experience. Well, while I was there, um, I got to walk around a little bit in between uh, some workshops that I got to be a part of. And as I'm walking around, um, Matt Wilson, who many of you know, uh, attends this church. If you don't know him, Matt heads up the Boone County Mentoring Partnership. Um, and he's a member of our church here. Well, he was there uh, at the convention as well. And so I'm standing, uh, so picture this, I'm standing talking to somebody. Uh, this actually is the guy that baptized me, and he was in town. He's a church planter in Albuquerque. And we were able to catch up and spend some time. Well, Matt comes walking up, and Matt starts to talk to us. And uh, Nate is this other guy. Nate starts to talk to Matt and learns about the mentoring partnership. They start talking. And Matt, if you know Matt, you know he likes to stir the pot. (laughs) He's got a spiritual gift uh, for that. And so he starts to tell Nate, I need more mentors if my lead minister would just get behind it. And and so they're they're talking. It's good. Uh, Right next to where this conversation's taking place, there is a booth for Milligan College. Okay, Milligan has a... A mascot, the buffalo. And at all of these conventions, they bring a life-sized stuffed buffalo, like the real deal at the convention. It's in the convention hall, and it's there. And so I had had enough of the pot stirring, so I kind of cut Matt off and said, hey, Matt, you get that buffalo to New Hope by Sunday, and I'll get you 50 more mentors. And I'll let nothing of it. And they hit right. I'm going to get a buffalo. Um, and so I leave. I go back home. And Sunday, last Sunday... Around 3 o'clock, I'm lounging on the couch at my in-law's house uh, with football and food and hanging out. And I get a text from Matt, and he says, hey, man, check this out. And he texts me this. (laughs) That is the buffalo. (laughs) He got the buffalo to New New Hope behind him, and he had talked to Milligan, and they brought the buffalo. And so I learned two really valuable lessons. One, that guy really loves his job. (laughs) And two, I need 50 mentors. And so, uh, particularly guys, if you're interested in being a mentor and getting partnered with someone in Boone County that needs you, come talk to me. I now work for the Boone County Mentoring Partnership. (laughs) And I'm in the recruiting department. And so, 
uh, I'm working for Matt now, and I need mentors, so come talk to me, all right? Hey, that had nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Uh, that was just fun. And so I'm going to pray for us, and we'll actually get to the message. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you speak to us. Uh, thank you that you want to speak clearly to us through your word, that you have preserved and protected this message for centuries, uh, because your Holy Spirit is alive and active and real. And Father, I'm grateful that through the work of your spirit and the power of your word, you can transform hearts and minds. And my prayer this morning is that when we walk out of here, we would be different than when we walked in. And we re- rely completely on you for that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, some are noble. Okay, some are noble. As the British prepared to hang Nathan Hale as a revolutionary war spy, he uttered out these last words before dying. My only regret is that I have but one life to give for my country. Some are tender. On his deathbed, President James Polk whispered, pulled his wife close and whispered to her, I love you, Sarah, for all eternity. I love you. Some are despairing, last words. As she lied dying on her deathbed, Queen Elizabeth I uttered out all of my possessions for a moment of time. Some are downright cranky. The last recorded words of author H.G. Wells were uttered to a nurse in a very stern way as he yelled out, get away from me, I'm all right. And then he died. (laughs) See, last words are a lot of things, but the one thing a last word, last words cannot be is ignored. There is something inside each of us that when we know somebody's time is coming to an end, we lean in closer and listen a little deeper because we instinctively understand that last words are important words. Shakespeare said it this way, the tongues of dying men enforce attention like deep harmony. See, there's something in us that resonates with last words. And so as Timothy, this young kid, receives this letter, 2 Timothy, the second letter written to him while he's a pastor in the city of Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, as he receives this message, he comes to understand this is the last words of his dear friend and mentor, Paul. See, the Apostle Paul had lived this incredible life and done all these incredible things, and he begins to pen this letter, and as Timothy gets to the end of the letter, I just imagine him leaning in a little bit closer and listening a little bit deeper to the words of the person who meant the most to him in the world. Just imagine for a moment the emotion that Timothy felt the first time he began to read the words of 2 Timothy. I mean, imagine the memories that flooded his brain and ministered to his heart. I mean, you got to think about this young kid meeting Paul in Acts chapter 16 and being invited on this journey with him. This young kid um, being discipled by Paul and brought into a deeper understanding of Jesus and a deeper relationship with Jesus. Paul inviting Timothy onto these missionary journeys where he got to see firsthand miraculous, incredible things happening and churches planted all over the place and leaders raised up and disciples multiplied. And Paul invited him all along on this journey. And then Paul said, I want you to stay in the city that means the most to me, Ephesus. I want you to pastor this church that is a deep place in my heart. I want you to take care of these people and raise up these leaders. And he sends them there. And that ministry was no walk in the park. This was a culture that was hostile against the message of Jesus. And at one point, Timothy even gets physically sick. And the words of the Apostle Paul get him out of a physical ailment. You see, Paul meant a lot to Timothy. So imagine the emotion flooding through his heart and his mind. As he reads these letters, the feeling of deep grief, because he knows he probably won't see his close friend again. 
See, he knows Paul's in prison in Rome, and he knows that in just a few months the winter will be there, and it will close down any kind of sea travel, which means he probably won't be able to get to Paul before Paul dies. See, he feels grief. I think he felt some fear because he understood that Paul's race was coming to an end, which meant now he had to pick it up and run with it. And maybe he wasn't feeling quite ready to do the work of the Apostle Paul. I think he felt great anticipation as he looked back and saw what God had done in the life of Paul and through the ministry of Paul and Timothy, and he anticipated God doing a mighty work into the future, whatever the emotion, I think it was weighing down deep on him. And he, he leans in closer to these words, and he presses in closer to this message that Paul would say to him, and he's wondering, what is it that Paul wants to leave with me? What are the last words of the Apostle Paul? What is it that Paul would want to echo into the mind and the heart of Timothy for the rest of his life? And because this is the word of God, what is it that Paul would want to echo into the mind and the heart of disciples and followers of Jesus for ages to come for the rest of their lives? Last week, David began to walk us through these last words of Paul. and He started with a very simple message found in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And here's what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, Timothy, if you don't remember anything else I've taught you, if you don't remember anything else that I've brought your way, I want you to remember this. If the world gets really heavy and difficult, and hard, and it causes you to forget some things. Here's the one thing, my final word, you can't forget this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Timothy, you can't forget that. You've got to preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Timothy, if you can only remember one thing from my life that I want to pass on to you, preach the word of God. Know God. You've got to know him. You can't just know about him. You see, in the original language, the word preach translated out literally means to convey a message on behalf of your king. You see, he wants, he says, Jesus needs to be the king of your life, the king of your heart. You need to not just know about him, but you need to know him intimately to the point where you are conveying this incredible message. You're preaching the word. Now, what I've learned in my life, and maybe you've learned this in your life too, if you're anything like me, is that we tend to communicate the things that are important to us. When something's exciting to you, when something means a lot to you, you want to tell the world about that something, right? Just look at the way our communication structure is formed in the world today around social media. We post about what matters to us. And when we get with people, like maybe you did with your families at Thanksgiving, you started to talk about what meant the most to you in the past year. At our home, we went around the table and communicated. Everybody had to talk about something that they were grateful for. Something that was inside of them that they felt such gratitude for that they needed to communicate it, to convey that good news of what brought them gratitude and thanksgiving. I don't know what it is, but there seems to be in my life and maybe in yours <coughs> a disconnect between the incredible uh, uprising of joy that we felt that moment we became a Christian and years after following Jesus where somehow that good news message doesn't always come out. We kind of shy away from it. Kind of don't tell people about it. When if you and I were to have a cup of coffee and sit down and have a conversation, you would probably convey to me, this is the most important thing in my life. It's Jesus, the good news of Jesus. And so if I asked you a logical second question, which I'm not asking, so don't answer, would be this. When was the last time you shared that good news with somebody else? You see, if you came into my office here in the church, you would see a lot of Superman stuff. My kids know that I'm a Superman fan. I, I like it. And so every Father's Day, that's the theme, right? I get something about Superman given to me on Father's Day. And so it's all over my office. It's at my home. And I've got a lot of, father, I've got a lot of uh, 
Father's Day cards in a box. <laughs> I don't know where to display them anymore. It's a big deal. And so I'm, when a new movie comes out, I'm not always the first person to the movie theater. And so I hadn't seen Justice League when it came out recently. But after people that are close to me went and saw it, they did not hesitate to message me. They were excited to share that with me. Like, oh man, guess what? Superman's not really dead. And I'm like, guess what? That was a given. But we kept talking through it and they would share this great news. Like, oh man, this is such a cool movie. You got to go see it. You're going to like it. And it hit me in that moment, like, man, they're excited to share that. The same way we're all excited to share things that are new and exciting and fun in our lives. And yet, Paul says the thing that needs to excite you the most, the thing that boils up inside of you the most, is this gospel message. And gospel literally means good news. This good news that Jesus did for you what you were powerless to do for yourself. How excited do you get when you think about what he's done for you? Because that's good news. That's what he's called us to share. And he says, well, Why? Why is that the one thing that Paul would charge Timothy with, knowing that these are the last words? As Paul sat down to pen this letter, knowing, as he sat in a prison in Rome, knowing that this was the end of his life, why is it he chose to say that? Well, he can tell us why in verse 3. So thank you for asking. Verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, <coughs> but having itching ears, I mean, desiring to hear what only they want to hear, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So they'll just find people that will say what they want to hear. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, though, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So he says, Timothy, I want you to remember to preach the word. Always preach the word, because there's coming a day when the culture around you will not want to hear this sound teaching. Sound teaching. When you translate that out, it literally means healthy. Healthy teaching. Eugene Peterson says it this way. There's coming a day when he translates this verse, he says this, where people will no longer crave healthy teaching, but instead fill their lives with spiritual junk food. I like that. See, junk food tastes great in the moment, right? Any pie lovers at Thanksgiving? Man, I had to have a sugar cream pie, and I got it, and I ate it. It was awesome. I'm still, no one else can have it anymore. The rest is mine, that kind of thing. Junk food's awesome in the moment. But a continual dose of junk food does not lead to health. And that's what Paul's saying here when it comes to bad teaching. When you wander from truth, when the world around you says, like, no, 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 just find the right kind of teaching that makes you feel good. Find the right kind of teaching that you're comfortable with, that meets your, pa- your preferences and the things that you're passionate about. Don't worry about the truth. Paul's telling Timothy, no, like, there's coming a day when people will not tolerate truth because they know they can go elsewhere and find whatever they want to hear. It's people that say, look, this might be true. And they're not going to follow any kind of historical thinking. Like, historically, yeah, that might be true. And logically, man, that really makes a lot of sense. But I don't like it, so I'm not going to obey it. That's the world, he says, Timothy, you're going to be in. And what happens in a world like that is the enemy's going to come at you pretty hard. And you're going to be tempted to kind of sway away from that. This sound teaching. And you're going to feel the weight of that, sound, that, that difficult teaching on your heart. And you're going to be tempted to sway from it, Timothy, but you've got to stand firm. You've got to remember the truth that will see you through. Now, here's what happens to me. Maybe it happens to you in your life. I know I go through seasons of doubt in my life. Maybe you have too. I go through seasons in my life where um, I get frustrated or I go through seasons where I'm reading something and I'm realizing what God's calling me to and I don't want to do it. I'm like, man, I'm like a, like a, oh, a rebellious kid. I'm like, I can't. That's uncomfortable. That's not going to be fun. God, I can't. I don't want to do that. And so we justify, and we, right, I go through that. But here, here's what I've learned in my life. The truth is not what's causing my frustration. It's not what's causing my pain. The truth is what sees me through it. 
You see, when I'm tempted to come over here and listen to myths and all kinds of other things that make me feel good, the only thing that gets me through these seasons of difficulty is to come back to the truth that Jesus did for me what I was powerless to do for myself. He earned the right to be my, not only my Savior, but my Lord. And so this is what Paul's telling him. He says, you need to pay close attention to this. And he says, now, in a world that refuses to acknowledge the truth, because all they want is their preferences. You, Timothy, in verse 5, he says this, you need to do a few things. First thing is this, stay sober-minded. What that literally means is stay sharp. Use your mind, Timothy. You see, anytime people in history have said, hey, following Jesus, it's like blind faith. That idea, that concept's nowhere in the Bible. I mean, verses like this tell us, stay sober-minded, stay sharp. Your brain has to be attentive. And he just got done saying, be prepared in season and out of season. There's a direct connection between that. In an effort to stay prepared to convey this great message of Jesus, your brain has to be used. So he says, study, come to understand it, always be ready, always be learning, acknowledge when you don't know something, but then go find out about it and learn and communicate and share this great message. Stay sober-minded, don't let your mind be paying attention to things that aren't important. Instead, use your brain to pursue truth. Second thing is this, he says, endure suffering. You live in a world where you stand for truth and the rest of the world does not want to stand for that truth. That will not be an easy life to live. And, and Timothy watched Paul's difficulty, literally going into cities and cities rejecting him and wanting to kill him and pursuing killing him. And then they traveled from city to city on a manhunt trying to take his life. And he's saying... You have to be willing. If this is true, it's worth giving your life to. Even when it's not easy. It's still, like, what I've learned in my life is this, that God is good even when life's not good to me. He's still good. And this is still true. Next, he says, do the work of an evangelist. You could translate this out to say, work hard. He says this, if anything in your life is worth giving your life to, worth working hard toward, this is it. This is the greatest news the world has ever heard. This is the news that the entire world needs. If anything's worth putting effort into, it is worth getting this message to other people. And then finally, he ends it with, fulfill your ministry. Fight for the heart of your king is what he's saying here. God has called you to something, and the reason he's called you is because he's a good, good father, like we sang about. He's a great king. He's earned the right to be your Lord and your Savior, and so fight for his heart. <clears throat> now, many of you know, um, if you've spent much time with me, you know that I'm a fan of certain movies, right? One of the movies that I love is Braveheart. I just love the movie Braveheart, and I can't wait for my kids to be allowed to watch it. They can't watch it yet. There's a few scenes that I'm not, they're not ready for. But it follows the life of William Wallace. And William Wallace is pursuing the freedom of his people, and along the way, he's betrayed by one of his close friends. You remember his name? Robert the... Yes, we have a brave part. Thank you, Pete. That's awesome. No one else. All three services, man. You get something, all right? So, look, Robert the Bruce betrays... He betrays William Wallace. Well, the story has it, according to Erwin McManus in his book, The Barbarian Way, that after William Wallace died, Robert the Bruce picked up the work of William Wallace after feeling guilty for betraying his friend. And he began to fight for that cause until in 1329, at the age of 54, on his deathbed, he made a request, his last words, if you will. And he said, I want my heart to be taken from my chest. I want my heart to be encased, and I, I want a chain around my heart. And I want a certain soldier to be selected, and I want him to wear my heart into war. And his close friend, James Douglas, was selected to be the one that would wear 
the heart of his king around his neck into battle, and that's what he did for years. He would go and he would fight in battle, battle after battle, wearing the heart of his king around his neck. It's a beautiful picture. A few years later, he sails to Spain to engage in a battle against the Moors. And when in this battle, he finds himself outnumbered. Him and his soldiers are going to die. There's no escape. There's no way they're going to get away from this. And in a moment, he takes that chain off of his neck and he thrusts it into the heart of the enemy. And he screams out to his soldiers, you go fight for the heart of your king. Fight. Fight for the heart of your king. Said that he yelled out, forward, brave heart, as ever thou were wont to do, and Douglas will follow his king's heart or die. And the motto of his clan from that day forward became one word, follow, forward, follow, go, 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 fight for the heart of your king. I think this is what Paul's telling Timothy. Timothy, this won't be easy, but you have a king whose heart is worth fighting for. He's done everything for you. Fight for the heart of your king. Endure suffering. Stay sharp. Protect truth. Give your life to this because of what he's done for you. And Paul says, at the end of your life may be said of you what will be said of me. And he says in verse six, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Paul is sitting there writing these words in a prison cell. After living a life that wasn't easy, but was beautiful and incredible, and all these different experiences. I mean, he was shipwrecked multiple times. He was beaten. He was left freezing cold at night, all night, with nothing to keep him warm overnight. He was left hungry. He was rejected. He was, uh, more than one occasion, people threw stones and tried to kill him. And he says, my life was well worth it. He uses a few analogies. He says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. He would say that also in Philippians chapter 2 to the church of Philippi, but it comes from Numbers chapter 15. And here's what it means when you just come to understand what that analogy means, drink offering. It means my life is an offering of gratitude to the one who did for me what I couldn't do for myself. I'm being poured out as a drink offering of gratitude to the king who did for me what I could not do for myself. He says not only that, uh, not only if I, uh, my life is a drink offering, but now the time of my departure is at hand. This is a nautical term, departure, and it refers to the direction a ship is heading in, away from something. And so he's telling Timothy, like, hey, the time of my departure, and you think in Acts chapter 29, we talked about this weeks ago, Paul is with the elders at Ephesus, and he has to leave them, and everybody's sad, and it's difficult, but they let him go, and he gets on a ship, and it departs and leaves them. And he's telling Timothy, hey, my time now is is up. It's time for my departure, and I'm going, and the next shore that I land on won't be here on earth be a heavenly shore. My time has come, though. But he said, it's okay, Timothy. I fought the good fight. It's a military term, and what would bring this to mind in Timothy's mind was this fighting the good fight means it's like a soldier. You'd need to picture Paul uh, dirty and sweaty after being in battle, and the armor's punctured, and he can barely lift up his sword anymore, and he has gone to battle, and he has won, and you can watch him walking off as the sun is setting, and he drops the sword and the armor because his battle is over. He said, I finished the race, Timothy. This is a term he used in 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, over and over again, this athletic term that says, my race, I've put everything into it, man. I've given my whole life to this race, and I've come to the end of my race. 
And Timothy, now it's your turn to pick this race up. While we were at ICOM a couple weeks ago, there was a guy that got up at the end of one of the services, man, and it was powerful. I'm going to steal what he said because it was too good and you deserve to hear it. <coughs> he got up and he began to list off the names of missionaries that had died that year. And he's name after name after name. And he's listing them and you're just like, man, these people gave their whole life to the message of Jesus. And they died. Some of them died very difficult deaths. Other than them died peacefully, but they were gone. And then after he got done reading the names, he said, a valiant warrior. A mighty man of God has died. He's quoting from the Old Testament at the funeral of a man named Benaiah. And he says, a valiant warrior, a mighty man of God has died. Who will take his place? A valiant warrior. A mighty man of God has died. Who will go in his place? He has finished his race. Who will pick up the pieces and finish their race next? And while I heard that, I'm thinking about this message that I'm going to be preaching to you guys the next week, and I'm thinking, that's Paul's message to Timothy. That's what God is saying to Timothy through the words of Paul. It's as though God is looking at Timothy and saying, when it comes to the life of Paul, Timothy, a valiant warrior, a mighty man of God is going to die, Timothy. Will you go in his place? As we finish up this series, you look at the end of Paul's life in Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 28. And you begin to understand, this is a really weird ending to the book of Acts. The whole second half of this book was about the life of the Apostle Paul. And you get down to the end and you mean, this guy just ended well. Here's what he says. Luke writes this. He says, he, Paul, lived there for two whole years at his own expense. That's significant because Paul's on death row in Rome. The average stay on death row in Rome was two years. So it's coming. He says he stayed there for two whole years at his own expense. And anyone who came to visit him, he welcomed him in. Like, hey, come in here, man. I got good news for you. Wait, Paul, you're like days away from dying. Why are you so excited? I just want to tell you. He says, proclaiming the kingdom of God. He says, hey, this, that's not the end of my story. Let me tell you about Jesus. And he was teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's it. It's the end. It's the last thing we know about Paul. It's a beautiful ending to the book. It's a beautiful ending to a beautiful life well lived for God. Since the end of his life, he just gave everything he had to this race he was running. As I was thinking through this, I asked a few people in our church a simple question, and I just said, hey, at the end of your life, what do you hope people will have said about you? I mean, if you were to live today with the end in mind, when you get to the end, what do you hope the people closest to you will say about you? <coughs> I asked one older guy in our church, and uh, he said this. He said, I feel pretty selfish answering that question. He said, I'll just tell you this. All I want is my kids to know Jesus. If they know him, they'll be okay without me. I mean, that's powerful. I asked Ryan, who you saw at the beginning of the series, uh, the service, um, I asked him what he thought. Man, he had good, he said this. All I want people to say is that, man, Ryan loved people the way that Jesus loved people. And then he had this great line. He said this. Here's a man who spent much time with God. I mean, that's good. Mine's borrowed. It's become a motto for my life. It haunts me in a good way. Genuinely, since I heard it, it keeps me up at night sometimes praying for my family and praying for the life that I feel like God has called me to live. Slightly morbid, so bear with me. The end of my life when I'm in my casket. I want my kids. I want them to say, that's the godliest man I ever knew. I want my wife to be able to say, 
I'd marry him all over again. It's the godliest man I ever knew, and I'd marry him all over again. It's not a game. It's not a joke. It's not pretend. We've all been called to live a life that's a race, it's a battle. We've been provided with truth to stand firm on. God has asked us to live with the end in mind. And some of us are playing around. We're not taking it seriously. So I challenge you with three questions so you can think about this. Three questions for you to contemplate living in the present with the end in mind. Here's the first one. At the end of your life, what or who do you hope that you would have given your time to? I mean, when it's all said and done, who and what do you hope that your time would have been given to? Your work? Come on. Creating a business? Creating a name for your family or a brand or a stage? Making a plush 401k that your family can coast out on? I mean, your family doesn't want your money. They want you. They need you. What we give our time to is an indicator of what's most important to us. The end of your life, what do you hope that you will have given your time to? Start giving your time to it now. One thing I've learned in life is this. If you're not dead, God's not done. Everyone in this room can take a step forward. Second question is this. What or who do you hope that you will have given your money to? And I say that with no hesitancy. Because your money is a direct indication of where your heart is. What you give your money to is where your heart is. You want to give your money to buying more stuff? Do you want to give your money to creating a retirement that you'll enjoy for a little while? Do you want to uh, create a, a, a plush family fund? Or do you want to give your money to things that will last for eternity, that will echo into eternity? Do you want to adopt a child that needs to be adopted in another country as a family? Do you want to give money to a missionary as a family that you pray over and you begin to support on a monthly basis? Do you want to give your money to things like our REACH initiative? Yes, I said it, the REACH initiative, so that this church could be debt-free and dream about what's next, not for us, but for those who are coming behind us. You do realize everything we do is for those who are coming next. It's not for us. But what you give your money to is a direct indication of where your heart is. And at the end of your life, when you look back on your life, what are you going to hope that you would have given your money to? Start doing it now. Last question. What do you hope at the end of your life? Who or what do you hope that you will have given your talents and abilities to? Everyone in this room has been given a gift by God. Everyone. I like the way Francis Chan said it. He said, the problem with most of us is that we sit in a room and we watch one, people use, one person use their gift. And that's what you're doing right now. But others, he's given the gift of administration to. Not me. He didn't give that one to me, but he gave that to a lot of you. He gave the gift of hospitality, where some of you are the most incredible, warm hosts that can change lives by opening the doors of your home. Some of you, he give, he's given the gift of time, where you have time to give to other people and service, whatever your gift in about a month, we're going to have the ability for you to go online and determine what your spiritual gift is. And then we're going to do our best to line up your gifts with areas that you can serve here at the church, but it's bigger than that. When you know what God has given to you, you've been entrusted with something. And the question is, at the end of your life, what will you hope you would have done with what he entrusted to you? If you're not dead, he's not done. You can give your time to that. Let me close out this way, friends. We have a king whose heart is worth fighting for. Will you fight for it? Let's pray.
Father, thank you. God, thank you for the calling that you've placed on each of our lives. Thank you that this thing called church is not, it's not a game. It's not a show that we come to watch. It's a family that we're a part of. God, thank you that your spirit is alive inside each and every one of us, and he wants to use us to make a difference in the lives of other people. Father, thank you that you did for us what we were powerless to do for ourselves so that our lives can be a drink offering offered to you in gratitude because we're so transformed and moved by your goodness. God, may it be said of us at the end of our lives that we made much of Jesus. And I pray for this in his name. Amen. As we prepare for uh, communion, let me direct your thoughts this way. Only 69 days into his presidency, Ronald Reagan had given a speech at the Washington Hilton. And he's walking out, many of you remember this, he's walking out of that, um, giving that speech out of the Washington Hilton and exiting the hotel with his entourage when John Hinckley Jr. fired a blue steel revolver six times in 1.7 seconds. The first shot hit White House Press Secretary James Brady and another hit D.C. Police Officer James Delonte. A third bullet hit Secret Service Agent Timothy McCarthy and one 22 cartridge bullet hit the intended target, President Reagan, and it lodged one inch from his heart and his lung. When the sound of gunshots hits the auditory cortex, when it hits your ears, the natural reaction is to take cover. That's what we do. We, we, we take cover and we cower, and that's what we should do. That's what everyone that day did, except for the Secret Service agents, who were so trained, so think about the training that it would take to reverse that reaction. They were so trained in a moment where they would hear that to react in the opposite way. Agent McCarthy instinctively did what agents do, and they call it spread eagle position. He made himself the largest possible target to protect the life of the president. McCarthy is one of only four agents in our nation's history to take a bullet for the president. He took a bullet to the abdomen, quite possibly saving Ronald Reagan's life. I would contend to you that 2,000 years ago, Jesus went into spread eagle position. You see, because of your sin, the wrath of God was pointed at you because God, in an effort to be just and kind, has to punish sin. And that punishment was aimed right at you. And Jesus went into spread eagle position. And he took, he took that shot for you. He absorbed that punishment on your behalf. He did for you what you could not do for yourself. And so when we take communion, we come together as a church. And communion is so much more. It includes personal, introspective reflection. But it's not just that. You see, when the Bible talks about communion, we come together and we take the bread and we take the juice and we remind ourselves of the covenant relationship that we've entered into with Jesus. It is a communal thing. It is an all-of-us-together thing. And so today... As the elements are passed, I'm going to ask you to hold the cup and hold the bread. And together as a church, we're going to celebrate with gratitude Jesus going into spread equal position to protect us, to save us from what we were powerless to save ourselves from. If you're a believer, hold on to the elements. If you're not a follower of Jesus, don't feel bad. Just pass the tray. We'll get through it quickly, I promise. Let's celebrate this together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We offer you this moment, this reconnection with that covenant. In the name of Jesus, amen.